everybody. Welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and this time I'll be talking about superheroes as fascists. Now, me personally, I grew up loving Superman. I will always love Superman. It was Superman, then Batman, then Spider-Man, then the Fantastic Four, then the Green Lantern, and everyone else followed. I used to run around the backyard when I was a little kid. My mom had safety pinned a towel to my t-shirt and I ran around with my hands stuck out thinking that I was Superman because I loved Superman. I never thought of Superman as being a fascist. I thought of him as being a hero who came to save the day. And I will always think of Superman as saving the day. But, according to people like Alan Moore, superheroes preserve the status quo, employ symbolic visual imagery, have flawless bodies, and use their powers to place themselves above the law. Are they just fascists in tights? Superheroes are democratic ideals. They exist to express what's noblest about us, selflessness, sacrifice, a commitment to protect those who need protection and to empower the powerless. Superheroes are fascist ideals. They exist to symbolize the notion that might equals right, that a select few should dictate the fate of the world, and that the status quo is to be protected at all costs. Both of these things are true and inextricably bound up with one another but they weren't always. Truth, jawlines, and the American way, the changing face of Superman. When he debuted in 1938, Superman was briefly a progressive icon. He sprang, after all, from the minds of two Jewish kids in Cleveland warily watching the rise of Hitler in Europe. In his first year of life, they sent their champion of the oppressed, his very first nickname, years before Man of Steel, after corrupt senators, warmongering foreign leaders, weapons merchants, and crooked stockbrokers, he purposefully raised a slum to force the city to provide better low-income housing. He also launched one-man crusades against slot machines, reckless drivers, and cheating college football teams, which, yep, guy kept busy. Both Captain America and Wonder Woman were created expressly to fight the Nazi threat. Literally to fight it. To punch it right in its dumb, ratsy face. Batman, on the other hand, spent much of his first year protecting only his city's wealthy elite from murder plots, jewel thieves, and extortion. Also, werewolves and madmen with Napoleon complexes plotting death blimps. Comics, guys. It took him a little while to turn his attention to the kind of petty crime that afflicted the common citizen. The arrival of Robin the Boy Wonder helped him focus. But with the advent of World War II, Superman, Batman, and other costume heroes found themselves conscripted alongside Captain America. Not to fight the Axis themselves, mind you, but to root out stateside saboteurs and urge readers to plant victory gardens and buy war bonds. In the process, the visual iconography of superheroes, which, comics being comics, is 50% of the formula, remember, melded with that of patriotic imagery. 
This continued for decades after the war, as once progressive heroes like Superman came to symbolize bedrock Eisenhower-era American values, the American way, in addition to notions of truth and justice. There's a book called Cape Crusade, Peaks Under Batman's Iconic Cowl. Yet there was always something about superheroes, and Superman in particular. He'd helped inspire the country to defeat fascism, but he looked like he did. The kind of idealized male musculature the Nazis fetishized and possessed powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. What's more, he used said powers and abilities against those comparatively weak and frail mortal men if they stepped out of line. He also came from an advanced planet peopled by a, and here's a pesky phrase that kept cropping up Superman, super race. It wasn't intended, but it was there. People noticed. One person in particular, Dr. Frederick Rutham, who in his 1954 anti-comic screed, Seduction of the Innocent, noted that Superman's whole shtick was hurting criminals without getting hurt himself, and dubbed him an un-American fascist symbol. It hit a nerve. Wertham's crusade changed the industry completely, effectively ending crime and horror comics and shuttering many comics publishers. But the changes to superhero comics and their fascist overtones proved more subtle. Suddenly, Superman's powers didn't derive from his super-race genetics, but from science. The rays of Earth's yellow sun, to be specific. But Batman, who'd been deputized by Gotham's police department as early as 1941, grew even chummier with the cops. Most stories now began with an urgent plea for help from a worrisomely hapless Commissioner Gordon. In the Marvel era, Wertham's concerns about the fascistic elements in superhero comics were about themes and implications, not actual text. Because at the time, kids were the primary audience for comics, which presented stark, simple morality plays. Light versus darkness, good versus evil, more abstract qualities like characterization, psychology, and overtly political context simply never showed up in a given comic. That changed when Stan Lee and Jack Kirby introduced the Fantastic Four in 1961, and especially when Lee and Ditko created Spider-Man in 1962. The men recognized that a demographic shift was underway. Older teenagers and adults were now buying comics. So Lee, Ditko, and Kirby created a roster of heroes whose troubled lives reflected those of their readership, conflicted, quarrelsome, and deeply insecure. And with the words, with great power comes great responsibility, Amazing Fantasy number 15, August 1962, Lee introduced a concept that greatly mitigated, for Spider-Man at any rate, the fascism baked into the superhero genre. Sacrifice. Previously, superheroes had paid lip service to the notion of selflessness. The altruism they exhibited was reflexive and unquestioned as part of the narrative infrastructure as essential to the genre as colored underpants. This was because that altruism hadn't needed to be questioned. As superhero stories were still simple stories to reassure children that good always triumphed over evil. The fact that their tremendous powers and abilities shielded superheroes, often literally, from experiencing any lasting harm also served to undermine their status as truly heroic. Lee and his co-creators cut against the tendency by showing Peter Parker really suffering, 
before, during, and after his decision to be Spider-Man. Soon, comics teamed up with mopey, hot-headed, angst-ridden heroes whose powers and abilities only serve to complicate their lives and deepen their baseline misery. It took DC heroes like Superman and Batman to catch on to this trend, but once they did, they doubled down on it. Superman entered an era which he lost and gained his powers with metronomic regularity, and Batman became a tortured obsessive. Superfascism as a plot point. In the 1980s and afterward, as superhero comics shed their child readership and turned in on themselves to cater exclusively to teens and adults, the dawning of the grim and gritty era meant that fascism latent in the superhero genre became one of its chief storylines. In books like Watchmen, The Dark Knight Returns, Kingdom Come, Empire, Civil War, and many others, creators explicitly grappled with how heroes exert their will when their penchant for benign intervention becomes less than benign. In monthly comics and one-shot tales set in alternative universes, scores of superheroes became dictators, often for the greater good, and crushed any insurrection that upset their status quo. This goes back a good few years. Uh, Batman vs. Superman and Captain America Civil War revolve around a non-powered billionaire attempting to reign in a rogue superhuman, and both engage in the by now inevitable chin-stroking about freedom and government control. Today, fascism has far more potential tools in its arsenal than ever, and the cinematic superhero glut we now find ourselves in reflects that. Again and again, these movies offer symbolic, dark mirror reflections of the surveillance state. Although conceived in a progressive spirit, the superhero genre's central narrative has always been one of defending the status quo through overpowering might. In the vast majority of those cases, the one doing all the defending and overpowering is a straight white male. This is just one of the reasons that the superhero genre, which has a knack for distilling American culture to its essence, can get a little on the nose sometimes. More often than that, the straight white male in question has a square jaw and killer abs and holds vast amount of power, but chooses not to use it to subjugate others simply because he's a good person. Which is to say, historically, the genre's organizing principle is that the only thing keeping fascism from happening is that straight white dudes are chill. But slowly, incrementally, as comics and movies and TV shows and games, t-shirts and coffee mugs, start to fill up with more characters like Ms. Marvel, a Pakistani-American teenage girl from Jersey City, the visual iconography of superheroes and what those superheroes mean to the culture will force the genre to do something it has historically resisted. It will change. And once superheroes look different, and once the world on the comics page more closely resembles the world off of it, you will still be able to discern the low but steady drumbeat of fascism that the genre has never been able to escape. But it will grow lower and less steady. Alan Moore unsurprisingly thinks superheroes can be a precursor to fascism. The Watchmen author believes superheroes contribute to the infantilization of adults by Matt Shimkowitz, and this came out on October 9th, 2022.
despite Spider-Man No Way Home, the more fun stuff version swinging into theaters, Watchmen author Alan Moore still isn't a fan of superheroes. Speaking to The Guardian recently, Moore spoke with his typical candor, bluntly saying that our cultural obsession with superheroes can often be a precursor to fascism. I said around about 2011 that I thought that it had serious and worrying implications for the future if millions of adults were queuing up to see Batman movies, Moore said. Because that kind of infantilization, that urge towards simpler times, simpler realities, that can very often be a precursor to fascism. His proof? Most of the biggest movies in the world were superhero movies. He wouldn't be the first to notice the number of backsliding democracies and the rise of authoritarian governments around the world starting in the mid-2010s. Though correlation does not imply causation, Moore's assessment very much lines up with his writing in the genre. Watchmen made a Comic-Con favorite out of the fascist superhero Rorschach, who many read as a criticism of Batman. Meanwhile, V for Vendetta's V is perhaps the most famous anarchist in comics history. Moore's comments have also deep precedent within Moore's public statements, which are frequently about how superheroes have screwed up a lot of brains. For example, in 2014, he warned Padreg Olmeyad at Slova Books of a similar infantilization. He writes, To my mind, this embracing of what were unambiguously children's characters at their mid-20th century inception seems to indicate a retreat from the admittedly overwhelming complexities of modern existence. It looks to me very much like a significant section of the public having given up on attempting to understand the reality they're actually living in, have instead reasoned that they might at least be able to comprehend the sprawling, meaningless, but at least still finite universes presented by DC or Marvel Comics. I would also observe that it is, potentially, culturally catastrophic to have ephemera of the previous century squatting possessively on the cultural stage and refusing to allow this surely unprecedented era to develop a culture of its own, relevant and sufficient to its times. Moore remained consistent with his view in 2019 when he told The Guardian that the term graphic novel was created to validate adults' continued love of Green Lantern or Spider-Man without appearing in some way emotionally subnormal. We'd ask Moore never to change, but it doesn't sound like he ever will. Unfortunately, while Alan Moore is still in the business of delivering piping hot takes on the comics industry and our own crumbling culture, he is definitely out of the comic book business. I'm definitely done with comics, he said. I will always love and adore the comics medium, but the comics industry and all the stuff attached to it just became unbearable. Fair enough. Now we get to Art Spiegelman. Golden Age superheroes were shaped by the rise of fascism. Created in New York by Jewish immigrants, it's funny, uh, they said they were, kept, they were from Cleveland earlier, the first comic book superheroes were mythic saviors who could combat the Nazi threat. They speak to the dark politics of our times. Back in the benighted 20th century, comic books were seen as sub-literate trash for kiddies and intellectually challenged adults badly written, hastily drawn, and execrably printed. 
Martin Goodman, the founder and publisher of what is now known as Marvel Comics, once told Stan Lee that there was no point in trying to make the stories literate or worry about character development. Just give them a lot of action and don't use too many words. It's a genuine marvel that this formula led to works that was so resonant and vital. The comic book format can be credited to a printing salesman, Maxwell Gaines, looking for a way to keep newspaper supplement presses rolling in 1933 by reprinting collections of popular newspaper comic strips in half-tabloid format. As an experiment, he slapped a 10-cent sticker on a handful of the free pamphlets and saw them quickly sell out at a local newsstand. Soon, most of the famous funnies were being gathered into comic books by a handful of publishers and new content was needed at cheap reprint rates. This new material was mostly made up of third-rate imitations of existing newspaper strips or genre stories echoing adventure, detective, western, or jungle pulps. As Marshall McLuhan once pointed out, Every medium subsumes the content of the medium that precedes it before it finds its own voice. Enter Jerry Siegel, an aspiring teenage writer, and Joe Schuster, a young would-be artist. Both nerdy, alienated Jewish misfits many decades before that was remotely cool. They dreamed of the fame, riches, and admiring glances from girls that a syndicated strip might bring and developed their idea of a superhuman alien from a dying planet who would fight for truth, justice, and the values of President Roosevelt's New Deal. Barely out of childhood themselves, the boys' idea was rejected by the newspaper syndicates as naive, juvenile, and unskilled before Gaines bought their 13 pages of Superman samples for Action Comics at 10 bucks a page, a fee that included all rights to the character. Not only was Siegel and Schuster's creation the model for the brand new genre that came to define the medium, their lives were the tragic paradigm for creators built of the large rewards their creations brought their publishers. It is generally agreed that Superman launched the Golden Age of Comics in June 1938 with his debut in Action Comics No. 1, published by what is now known as DC Comics. Siegel and Schuster had created a new archetype, or perhaps more accurately, a new stereotype, and by 1940, once the nascent genre had demonstrated that it could get kids to part with millions of dimes per month, swarms of imitators catapulted hordes of four-color heroes into the skies, all chasing the gold in this golden age. The juvenile naivete of Superman was, it seems, actually part of its allure, inviting youngsters into a new, especially kid-friendly kind of story whose fantasies were even more unfettered by logic than most prose pulp fiction, all presented with diagrammatic visuals in primary and secondary colors that can make every page a theater curtain to be raised onto new eyeball kicks and action. Goodman, trend-surfing publisher of some lurid pulps, was one of the first to ride the superhero wave, immediately making a giant splash with his first issue of Marvel Comics in 1939. The first printing of 80,000 copies was followed by a reprint of 800,000 more. The content was provided by Funnies, Inc., a comic book packager that could produce complete comics from concept to finished art for nascent publishers who wanted to keep their overheads low. 
these shops had something in common with the garment district sweatshops many of the artist's family members worked in, usually done as piecework while punching a time clock with many hands, script writers, pencilers, inkers, and letterers, all attacking the original pages almost simultaneously, this was more a small industry than an art form. It recruited green youngsters, washed up old hacks, and even when the Second World War came along and drafted many of the young men who filled the growing demand for comics, women, people of color, and other interlopers. Those interlopers, by the way, still had to provide the racist and sexist stereotypes that have long been a touchstone of the whole medium. At this point, it might be worth pointing out, not out of ethnic pride, but because it might shed some light on the rawness and the specific themes of the early comics, that the pioneers behind this embryonic medium based in New York were predominantly Jewish and from ethnic minority backgrounds. It wasn't just Siegel and Schuster, but a whole generation of recent immigrants and their children, those most vulnerable to the ravages of the Great Depression, who were especially attuned to the rise of virulent anti-Semitism in Germany. They created the American Ubermenschen who fought for a nation that would at least nominally welcome your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. To name check just a few of those secular Jews who had adapted Clark Kent-like secret identities, Gaines was born Max Ginsburg. Goodman's parents immigrated from Vilnius, Lithuania. Jack Kirby, Nee Jacob Kurtzberg. The powerhouse who co-created Captain America with his landsman Joe Simon was born in the slums of New York's Lower East Side. And Stan Lee, who became the face of Marvel Comics, was Goodman's wife's cousin, nepotistically hired as a 17-year-old office boy named Stan Lee Lieber. Though not welcome in the higher precincts of advertising and publishing, they were all able to find their niche at the bottom of the barrel. The unseasoned artists in these comics factories discovered the possibilities of a new form while under do-or-die deadline pressures. They picked up their skills by copying each other and by stealing directly from the masters of the newspaper adventure comics. Alex Raymond, Flash Gordon, Secret Agent X-9, Hal Foster, Tarzan, Prince Valiant, and Milton Kniff, Terry and the Pirates. On the other hand, Carl Burgos, nay, Max Finkelstein, who created the lead feature in Marvel Comics 1, The Human Torch, proudly said, if they wanted Raymond or Kniff, they could look at Raymond or Kniff. The miserable drawing was all mine. A writer-artist, his then rudimentary drawing skills were buttressed by an intuitive visual storytelling ability and were implied to an inspired character. The human torch. The character, an anthropomorphized streak of red and yellow flame, had a graphic intensity that burned its way into readers' eyeballs and personified the raw, crackling energy of the early comic books before they were domesticated. William Blake Bill Everett Burgos' comrade of Funnies, Inc., was an oddity in comics. For one thing, he wasn't Jewish. Everett came from a 300-year-old patrician Massachusetts family, and he really was a direct descendant of his namesake. He came to the outsider status that drew him to comics via an addictive personality. He was a heavy drinker from the age of 12 and had a three-pack-a-day cigarette habit. Or maybe it was an outsider's sensibility that drove him to drink. 
He was one of the most gifted artists to ever work in comic books. He drew fluidly, was comfortable in many genres, and had a sense of page design that allowed the reader's eye to find buried visual treasures while swimming effortlessly through a story. After the first Captain America, the German Bund and the American Firsters bombarded the publisher's offices with hate mail and obscene phone calls. His alienated anti-hero, Namor, the Submariner, was the forefather of a long line of troubled characters that would populate the Marvel Universe a couple of decades later. In the 1940s, the Submariner was singular, a marked contrast to the square and square-jawed vigilante do-gooders who lived in the less scruffy DC Comics neighborhood. Never fully at home in the ocean or in the air, Namor was proud, arrogant, and more volatile than the human torch, his complementary opposite. But water and fire combined to bring Marvel Comics to an elemental boil. In late 1940, over a year before Pearl Harbor, while the Nazis were blitzkrieging London, Simon, an entrepreneurial freelancer for Funny Zinc, was hired by Goodman to write, draw, and edit for him directly. Simon showed him the cover concept for a new superhero that he and Kirby had dreamed up, a hero dressed like an American flag with giant biceps and abs of steel that just burst into Nazi headquarters and knocked Hitler over with a haymaker to the jaw. Goodman began to tremble and remained anxious until the first issue of Captain America, dated March 1941, landed on the stands. Goodman had been terrified that someone might assassinate Hitler before the comic book came out. Captain America was a recruiting poster, battling against the Nazi supervillains while Superman was still fighting cheap gunsoles, strikebreakers, greedy landlords, and Lex Luthor, and America was still equivocating about entering the conflict at all. No wonder Simon and Kirby's comic book became an enormous hit, selling close to a million copies a month throughout the war. But not everyone was a fan. In 1941, according to Simon, the German-American Bund and American Firsters bombarded the publisher's offices with hate mail and obscene phone calls that screamed death to the Jews. Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, a real-life superhero, called to reassure him, saying, the city of New York will see that no harm comes to you. Kirby's hyperkinetic figures with hypertrophied muscles left human anatomy in the dust. His characters were bellicose, humorless, single-minded, and angry as they burst out of the sawtooth panels and widescreen spreads. His art set the tone for superheroic action, not just during the war years, but ever since. I know that Kirby was a protein original as a comic book creator as well as a genuine war hero, but I confess that I have a blind spot when it comes to the superhero genre that grew out of the template he set. Even when I was 12, superheroes were my methadone. I was deeply addicted to satire magazines such as Mad and the old newspaper comics I discovered in my public library's bound volumes. I preferred more mature fare like Donald Duck and Little Lulu. You see, I love the form of comics. The pages full of co-mixed words and pictures butting up against each other. All those little boxes you have to compare and contrast to pry out the narrative juice. And I adored the weird idiosyncrasies of cartoon language and all its accents. Today, Captain America's most nefarious villain, the Red Skull, is alive on screen, and an orange skull haunts America. Those who find superheroes, the Alpha and Omega of comics, date the end of the Golden Age to sometime in the post-war 1940s when interest in the genre faded. 
disenchanted GIs, no longer an eager and captive audience, may have realized that it wasn't Captain America who won the war. Maybe it was the Russians. In any case, demobilized soldiers either grew out of the comic book habit or shifted their attention to other genres. Crime, cowboy, romance, horror, and war-themed comics flourished, often with more mature and even lurid content designed for older readers. I date the end of the Golden Age to 1954. A moral panic built on the false assumption that the medium was strictly for young kids and was turning them into juvenile delinquents had led to comic book burnings and to U.S. Senate hearings that ultimately put many publishers out of business and maimed the rest. Sanitized superheroes brought the medium off life support in 1956, now held as the beginning of the Silver Age, but the medium never regained the ubiquity it had in its heyday as comic books. As movies, they may have conquered the world. Back in the Golden Age, if you wanted to see some guy in a cape fly over a skyscraper or turn New York City into rubble, comic book panels were the most satisfying delivery system. In the 21st century, thanks to the miracle of CGI, many millions of people around the globe who have never read a comic or heard of graphic novels go to their multiplexes to worship the new deities that embody the DNA of comics. The young Jewish creators of the first superheroes conjured up mythic, almost godlike secular saviors to deal with the threatening economic dislocations that surrounded them in the Great Depression and gave shape to their premonitions of impending global war. Comic books allow readers to escape into fantasy by projecting themselves on to invulnerable superheroes. Auschwitz and Hiroshima make more sense as dark comic book cataclysms than as events in our real world. In today's all-too-real world, Captain America's most nefarious villain, the Red Skull, is alive on screen, and an orange skull haunts America. International fascism again looms large. How quickly we humans forget. Study these Golden Age comics hard, boys and girls and the dislocations that have followed the global economic meltdown of 2008 helped bring us to a point where the planet itself seems likely to melt down. Armageddon seems somehow plausible and we're all turned into helpless children scared of forces grander than we can imagine, looking for respite and answers in superheroes flying across screens in our chapel of dreams. While the content of comic books has hijacked our cinema, the form of comics, cleverly described as graphic novels, has infiltrated what's left of our literary culture. When the Folio Society, venerable publisher of luxurious illustrated books since 1947, decided to plunge in with a deluxe compilation of Golden Age Marvel comics, they invited me, as a graphic novelist and comic book scholar, to write an introduction to the book. Perhaps they misguidedly figured that I might lend the endeavor a fig leaf of respectability. I turned the essay in at the end of June, substantially the same as what appears here. A regretful Folio Society editor told me that Marvel Comics, evidently co-publisher of the book, is trying now to stay apolitical and is not allowing its publication to take a political stance. I was asked to alter or remove the sentence that refers to Red Skull or the intro could not be published. I didn't think of myself as especially political compared with some of my fellow travelers, but when asked to kill a relatively anodyne reference to an orange skull, I realized that perhaps it had been irresponsible to be playful about the dire existential threat we now live with, and I withdrew my introduction. A revealing story serendipitously showed up in my newsfeed this week. I learned that the billionaire chairman and former CEO of 
Marvel Entertainment, Isaac Ike Perlmutter, is a longtime friend of Donald Trump's, an unofficial and influential advisor, and a member of the president's elite Mar-a-Lago club in Palm Beach, Florida. And Perlmutter and his wife each have recently donated $360,000, the maximum allowed, to the Orange Skull's Trump Victory Joint Fundraising Committee for 2020. I've also had to learn yet again that everything is political, just like Captain America socking Hitler on the jaw. And that came from Alan Moore. And uh, I have a very naive, simplistic view of this, because I've always loved Superman, and Superman will always be the number one. Superman will be the square-jawed hero who comes in to save the day, and I'll go to my grave thinking that. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out. Thank <music> you.